Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Parchemancier. I just wanted to take a moment to tell you all that this podcast is entirely listener-supported. If you like this sort of thing, please, please, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks and consider throwing in a few bucks for every time I put out an episode. We've got another uh, seven or eight episodes on this book, and I hope you've all been enjoying it. Anyway, without further ado, here's chapter 12. Boschmansier, a novel by Strangely Duesberg, read by the author. Chapter 12. Oftentimes, nighttime arrives all at once, of a sudden, like a curtain closing or a light being switched off. You lose yourself in a book, a conversation, or a card game, and the next thing you know, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. But sometimes, the daylight lingers. Perhaps the sky is clear of clouds, or the solstice has come, or the moon conspires to share her pale luminescence with her brighter compatriot. Tonight is such a night. A night for gatherings around tables and kitchens. A night of boggarts and witches, of songs and stories. The light holds on, here and there, in a bit of brickwork or an evergreen tree, tiny flickers of the sun's warmth. It is at dusk on just such an evening that a somewhat motley party of four exits a cab on a quiet street. The two magicians and their feline companion had found the bookseller in his usual booth at the pub, maudlin over some past event. His refusals of company had been gently dismissed, and he soon brightened, particularly when they suggested adjournment to his own home for the remainder of the evening. Much like Kells's residence, Martin's is nigh empty of the possessions one would expect a person to have, save for the books. Martin lives in a smart little townhouse some distance from his shop. The brick structure was built long ago when his neighborhood was a well-off suburb. It has long since been swallowed by the growth of the city. Martin gives them a tour, his demeanor again inflected by the role of butler. No, not a butler, Eleanor thinks. A curator. Downstairs is a cozy sitting room that spills into a combination kitchen and study. Along the right-hand wall lies a countertop, sink, stove, and the like all facing a desk set up to look at a large window at a postage stamp back garden. Martin mumbles something about hiring a local man to tend the garden and clean up the house, but is quick to change the subject. Up a cramped spiral staircase are two bedrooms. The left-hand one has a simple bed and night table for guests. Eleanor notes the several, no doubt well-selected, books waiting on the nightstand. Across the short landing is the other bedroom, which serves as Martin's closet. Instead of a bed, he has filled it with tweed jackets, bow ties, shirts, hats, and other haberdashery. Necessary to be a dashing dandy, don't you know, says Martin, twiddling his mustache. Eleanor and Kells avoid one another's eyes in a deliberate attempt not to burst into giggles. Martin waves them up toward the top of the stairs. And up there is the attic where I sleep, though I must confess I more often than not doze off in my armchair downstairs. How did that get out of place? As Martin bustles over to adjust his shirt, already hung up to perfection, Kells leans close to Eleanor. She breathes. Instead of a bed, the room has two couches pushed together to create a kind of nest. He sleeps in a pile of blankets like an animal. 
Eleanor manages to hide her laughter in an almost convincing coughing fit. Martin's gaze snaps to her, his eyebrow a Cartesian curve. Perhaps she has not hidden it so well after all. Your home is beautiful, Eleanor wheezes as they move back down the stairs. Though his home is undoubtedly spacious enough, it feels much smaller, as Martin has covered every single wall in the house, floor to ceiling, with bookshelves. She tries to guess their number in her head and fails. How many are there? I believe the current number is... 6,530... Martin pauses and pulls a pair of books out of his jacket. Once again, Eleanor would be hard-pressed to guess from where. Four. I can't imagine reading so many books, says Eleanor. Kells laughs. Oh, but you know, Martin has read them all. Yes, says Martin, proud. All of them, except, of course, the dictionaries and the cookbooks. Anything intended to be referential. And a few of those books over there in Latin. I have those for when I can't sleep. And this shelf here by the door. These are the new arrivals, who have yet to find their places. Though, some may return to the shop if I don't feel the need to keep them. The cat has installed itself on a duvet by the fireplace. Despite its wretched appearance, it looks almost lovable. Eyes closed, tail curled. Martin excuses himself and goes into his dressing room, only to reappear moments later dressed head to toe in chef's checks, complete with jacket and cap. He bustles off into the kitchen, whistling something that puts Eleanor in mind of a life in pink. As good smells begin to fill the house, Eleanor meanders among the books, running a finger along the spines. She feels somewhat lost and adrift without her coat, without the pockets full of everything anyone could ever think of seeing in a pocket. Her hands are desperate to begin making their methodical way through the coat's contents, one by one, finding each and every item in its proper place. She always knows where it all is, every single button, pen, and curio, an exact accounting of each thing, precise numbers, everything. Well... Almost everything. There is one thing, one detail she has never allowed her mind to ponder, a thought she runs from, almost as if it were a mortal sin. Eleanor has never counted how many pockets her jacket has. Kells has pulled a book off of a shelf, almost at random, and opened it to the very middle, a swimmer leaping off a cliff without first checking how cold the water is, or how deep. Eleanor moves closer and sees the book is full of poetry. Kells's lips are shaping slow words, so soft as to be audible only to herself. Eleanor smiles as she sits down on the sofa next to Kells and begins to empty her pockets onto the coffee table. Even without her coat, she has managed to collect an impressive amount of things during the last day. Along with the recently purchased curios from Adlin's shop, there are nearly two dozen other things she has picked up. A pair of minuscule oak leaves that look as though they came from a bonsai nestle with a downy feather between two business cards, one from the dry cleaners and the other for the restaurant they terrorized. There is also a safety pin, two coins not of the local currency, a cigarette, and a key so battered it more closely resembles a shiv. As Eleanor looks over the pile of objects, she wonders what she would do if she ever lost her coat. Get a new one, she supposes, and start adding pockets. Somehow the idea feels wrong, as though a betrayal of her peculiar calling. Eleanor shakes her head in an attempt to clear the thought and picks up the book from Adlin's. The musty tome, much heavier than she prefers her reading material to be, 
is supposed to contain an account of a pockets man. If not, Adlin did beg her pardon, citing a dusty memory. As she tries to read, her thoughts keep straying to her coat, full of confusion as to why she keeps letting it be. Her time with Kells has been so happy. Perhaps it is just a kind of contentment in the presence of others that keeps her still. She is saved from further musings by the arrival of food. Martin has made a delicious noodle soup with sprigs of mint for garnish. After he places the bowls on the table, he dashes upstairs and returns, dressed for dinner with a truly hideous cardigan over his otherwise stately attire. Eleanor cannot tell if it is intended to be a joke, or if Martin thinks the outfit fetching. The question will vex her at the back of her mind for hours, until he informs her, apropos of nothing, that it was a gift from a friend. When this happens, Kells stares down at her hands, as if they were the most interesting thing she has ever encountered. Tell me a story, says Kells, snuggling down closer against Eleanor's shoulder. Dinner is a memory. Dessert has been eaten. A fire crackles in the grill. They are posted up in the sitting room, in much the same fashion as they had at Kells's apartment. Eleanor and Kells on the sofa, feet tucked up. Across the room, Martin is again lost in a book, this time a thick graphic novel which he keeps turning this way and that, occasionally flipping back to a previous page, chewing his lip in absent-minded concentration. Eleanor thinks for a long time before she begins, once again going to that time before, when everything else was so much bigger, grander, and more frightening, but also simpler. It was the last time her nuncle had come to visit, He'd been very thin, but happy, talking of plans and things in the works. He left early in the morning, as he always did, except this time he'd said goodbye. She'd woken to a quiet tapping at her bedroom door and him pressing a large package into her hands. He instructed her not to show it to anyone, to wait till a night when the light of the full moon shone in through her bedroom window. She'd placed the gift with reverence beneath her bed and hugged him tightly, Unsure as ever of when she would get to see him again. Returning to the present, she begins. When I was a child, my uncle would tell me the story of a lost submarine. This was during the big war. Which war? Kells asks. I don't know. The, the big one. The last big one. Eleanor laughs, aware that Martin's eyes have gone out of focus and the labyrinthine book in his hands is still. Do you want me to tell you the story or not? Yes, please. Sorry, sometimes I ask questions when I want more details. That's all right. But you should know this story doesn't have many of those kinds of details because my uncle didn't seem to be able to answer questions like that. See, I would ask him which war, and he would say something like, I don't know, the big one with all the planes that crashed, or when the ocean was on fire. Things like that. Kells nods, understanding. She mimes zipping her lips closed and throwing away a key. Eleanor chuckles and settles down into the sofa. Martin, she says. Hm? He seems startled to be called upon. You can listen too if you want. I don't mind. He nods, still staring straight ahead, and carefully marks his place in the book before setting it with care on the table beside his chair. Eleanor continues. This was many and twenty years ago, because when my uncle told me this story, it was already many years ago and that was twenty again from now. The enemy. Well, the ones who weren't my great-granddad's people anyway. They had a submarine, 
and the captain of this submarine was the most swashbuckling and daring in all of their fleet, and, by some accounts, a woman. Surely a scandalous thing back then, but such a good captain that nobody seems to have much cared. This was back when submarines were not as strong as they are now, and every single time you went down, you were never quite sure you were going to come back up. Those were the days when any metal cylinder with a couple of pumps and a propeller counted as a submarine. Sometimes they just weld over the windows on an old battleship and call it good. It took real courage to pilot one, let alone keep your cool during battle. Well, this captain certainly kept her cool, and all of her men respected her. I think the word in those days was dashing, and she certainly was. I remember my uncle showing me a picture of her once, a woman with a hard stare, and yet one of her eyebrows was cocked just a little bit, as though she was perhaps not quite as severe as you'd first think. And not just her. They were the most decorated crew in their entire fleet, renowned for damaging a combatant just enough to get them to surrender without sinking them. Because of this, she was almost as well respected by her enemies as by her own countrymen. Less than a year before the war ended, the submarine was reported sunk after a week-long game of cat and mouse. An entire fleet of ships, nearly a dozen in all, with balloons and planes and small boats in support, had all converged to chase down this one privateer and stop her at any cost. The submarine even managed to sink two of its pursuers in the fight and caused tremendous amounts of damage to almost every involved ship, but it wasn't enough. Very early on the eighth day, the remaining ships in the fleet began dropping depth charges at will, vowing to expend every single armament before they had to return to port to effect repairs. A crew member on one of the planes reported seeing a massive explosion deep underwater that caused a huge bubble to rise, bursting with smoke. But that wasn't the end, because a curious thing happened a month later. A merchant vessel was attacked from below without warning and nearly sunk saved only by the extreme calm of the water. Floundering, they surrendered, and soon enough they were boarded by the captain of the enemy submarine, a woman, clad in a long gray-green coat. Sure, it could have been a different woman, but how many female submarine commanders were there back in that war? My uncle always seemed to think this was proof she'd not been sunk. The captain of the merchant vessel was expecting to have his crew imprisoned and his ship commandeered. Instead, the captain of the submarine informed him that all his men were to lock themselves in the lower hold for one hour, and then they would be free to go on their way. When the merchant asked why, he was told it was none of his concern and that she had decided to be merciful. The crew of the captured ship was quick to obey, crowding fearfully into the cramped confines of one of the bulkheads. Several times during that ordeal, the lights flickered, and at one point the entire ship shook and groaned as if it were being twisted in a massive pair of hands. Precisely an hour later, the captain, worried about the ship taking on water and sinking, sent a man up to verify that they were allowed out. He made it up to the deck just in time to see the submarine departing, headed north. They effected some repairs at sea and managed to limp to a friendly port, the merchant captain ordered a careful inspection of the ship for booby traps or other mischief, but none were ever found. The cargo was completely untouched. In fact, nothing was missing. Not one single thing in the manifest, nor anything any of the sailors could recall. 
The only sign that they had been boarded at all was a large circle drawn on the deck in the middle of the ship with green paint, still drying in the afternoon sun. Almost a circle, anyway. It had a curious point where a small dent had been made in the side, curved inwards. Hearing this, Martin stiffens, a movement so small it is almost imperceptible. Eleanor, lost in her tail, does not notice. But Slice does. She continues. The captain counted his blessings and swore the crew to secrecy, even going so far as to neglect to mention in his logs that he had been boarded. The only reason anyone knows the story is because the captain wrote about it many years later in his memoir, an otherwise unremarkable book about the life of a professional seaman. My uncle always insisted that something must have been taken. But what? He was obsessed with finding out, and so had studied that book with a passion, as that encounter was the last time anyone ever saw the submarine. But there were whispers, tiny scraps of tantalizing hearsay and ideas which stretched down through the years. A journal entry, a love letter, a heavily redacted communique. You know, where they let you see it, but they've crossed out everything interesting with a pen, Martin interrupts. Eleanor and Kells, who had forgotten he was there, both jump, and then all three fall about laughing. Exactly, Eleanor says. My uncle had a copy. Well, a copy of a copy. Of a handwritten facsimile from memory. I think he loved that thing almost as much as his coat. He was sure it proved the crew had been given secret orders to find something. Secret orders? Kells doesn't even lift her head. What were they looking for? That was never particularly clear. But it was supposed to change the course of the war. Send us all into an age of darkness, or maybe one of light. It sounds like something out of an old film serial. You know, ancient artifact of unimaginable power. There's one more thing. At about the same time this business happened with the submarine, on the exact opposite side of the world, something went missing from the museum my great-granddad used to work in as a curator before he joined up to go fight. This... Whatever it was, had been found fifty years before the war. So that's many and seventy years ago now. It had been kept secret in a vast warehouse beneath the museum. Thousands upon thousands of boxes, crates, and jars, each carefully labeled and cataloged, all save one. This thing, so powerful as to make grown men gnash their teeth at the sight of it. Martin snorts with laughter. Like Adeline's basement... Kells and Eleanor laugh. Kells sits up. I know, right? It's like some kind of Alexandrian warehouse down there. I can't even tell how big it is. Martin nods. Oh, yes. It's at least twice the size of a shop. It extends under the street and under most of the neighboring shop as well. I think it has a sub-basement, too, though... With all the ramps, it's hard to tell. Even Slice seems to have taken an interest in the current topic of conversation. Although hunger could be a motivating factor for the mangy cat, Eleanor feels a chill run up her spine. Why is that basement so odd? We were down there today and I felt, well, strange. Though she gives nothing away, Kells is relieved to hear that her secret misgivings about the basement are shared by her friends. Worried her face will betray her, she says, What about the submarine? 
Martin, though, does not seem to notice her attempt to change the subject. I think the reason it feels so odd is because Adeline is doing something deliberately so. You know, there's a box the size of a refrigerator that has a label on the side which says buttons, comma, red. Did you open it? Eleanor asks, thinking of the death coats. Martin runs a hand over his hair and breathes in through his nose, pondering a response. Yes. He nods firmly. It was full of small red buttons, all identical, probably close to a million of them. I asked Adlin about it. And? Kells this time, curious in spite of her misgivings. And? Adlin said one of the buttons was bad. Bad? Yes, bad. And that's all I ever got Adlin to say on the subject. Seems if Adlin wants to hide something tiny. What better place than among a million other identical items? I looked through the basement and found that quite a few of the boxes contained large quantities of the same thing. Always a tiny thing. Pencils or playing cards. There's even a wardrobe full of wax fruit. Never mind the wax fruit, Martin. Eleanor, finish the story, says Kells, relieved that the topic of Adlin's basement seems to have lost Eleanor's interest. There isn't much more to tell, as that's all anybody knows. They may have sunk, or they may still be sailing under the seas, wandering to this very day. Eleanor finishes by making a spooky gesture with her outstretched hands. I love it. A good tale, lots of interesting details, but no conclusion. Really gets the imagination working, doesn't it? Martin nods once, satisfied. But what happened to them? Kells is incensed. She bounces off the couch and begins pacing. Where did they go? That's the point, Eleanor says. Nobody knows. It's a story without an ending. That's my favorite kind of story. One that doesn't tell you how it all wraps up. Life isn't like that. So why do stories have to be? But I want to know what happened. I happened, Kells. It's a story about my family. Kells grumbles a bit more, but soon sits back down. She picks up her book and resumes reading settling down against Eleanor's shoulder. Eleanor thinks of the photograph of the dashing captain, wearing a coat not so much unlike hers. And then she is kneeling on her bedroom floor, moonlight casting her shadow against the rumpled bedclothes thrown off in her haste. Deep asleep a moment ago, something in her dreams woke her, but she's already forgotten what. With trembling hands, she pulls the wrapped package out from under her bed, reverent as she tugs the strings apart and peels back the crackling paper. Inside the package, wrapped in tissued paper, is a coat much like her nuncles. She lifts it out as if it were a living thing and holds it up to the moonlight. It is too big for her, nearly brushing against the ground when she puts it on, clearly fitted for an adult. Some part of her mind knows she will grow to fit it, but she also feels disappointed that it is not her size. As she turns this way and that in front of her bedroom mirror, she feels something in one of the pockets. It is a small envelope containing a short note, a feather, a photograph, and a coin with a hole in it. The note, in her uncle's terrible handwriting that she recognizes from postcards he occasionally sends her, says, Fill this coat with wondrous things, and you shall never want for adventure. This is exactly what she does, wearing the coat nearly every single day. At first it is awkward, and she has a difficult time getting the hang of remembering where the things are. 
but as the years go on, she finds she has a knack for it. The coat is obviously well-made, as it stands up to any situation her life can throw at it. Eleanor never receives any formal instruction in magic, or even the peculiar art which she now practices. The only way she even knows what to call it comes from a single book she finds in the antiquarian section of a far-off library. The world becomes her playground as she travels lightly from one encounter to the next. Often as not, she forgets what city she is in. A life of magic, full of adventure. Eleanor realizes that she is crying. Kells, her head buried in Eleanor's shoulder, cannot see, but Martin can. Without a word, he pulls an ornate handkerchief out of his pocket and, folding it carefully, tosses it gently to her. As it flies, it opens and becomes almost like a parachute, floating down, a silken jellyfish. Eleanor plucks it from the air and daubs her eyes. I don't... Kells ponders aloud, her book forgotten. Her voice has an odd catch in it. You mean... Your uncle went off looking for the submarine? Yes, and he never came back. Nothing is said for a very long time. Eleanor stands. We should go. It's late. Martin, I'm sure you need to get up early tomorrow. He nods, sleepy, but then his eyes twinkle. I do indeed. I'm going to be making breakfast for the two of you. Kells smiles. Martin, you cad. He ruffles. I meant nothing of the sort. The guest room is open, and there are fresh linens on the bed. I assumed I'd be hosting the two of you here at some point in the near future. I won't hear another word about it. It's late. You can stay. Just make sure you let that cat outside for the night. I won't have it befouling anything in my house. Later, tucked into bed wearing the outrageous flannel pajamas that Martin had produced from the armoire in the guest room, Kells sleepily whispers into the dark. Eleanor, are you still awake? Yes. You miss your uncle, don't you? This time, the pause is so long that Kells is almost asleep before Eleanor says, Yes. He opened my eyes to the magic of the world. Kells is silent but a moment, then, half in dreams. At least you had someone to show you. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this week's episode of Parchmancier. I am really happy with how this is turning out and I know a lot of you folks are too so thanks for sticking with me and being faithful listeners it really means a lot it's it's so wonderful to hear from you folks and to hear the things you like and don't like and what parts get you excited because when you're making something like this it's a it's a very lonely endeavor you know I'm, I'm used to live performance where I get up in front of an audience and I get them to sing along with my accordion songs so to be doing something a little bit quieter and a little bit more personal, like writing a novel and then reading it to people a chapter a week, is it's a totally different experience for me. So thank you all so much for being a part of it and helping make this a reality. Uh, speaking of helping make this a reality, if you'd like to help support this podcast, I urge you to head on over and check out uh, patreon.com slash strangely writes books you can also go to poshmancier.com to find all of my social medias or whatever through that and uh, you can send me an email at strangely writes books at gmail.com that's strangely writes books at gmail.com check it out I look forward to hearing from you and I will see you all next week for chapter 13 
Oh, this is embarrassing. I forgot to look at uh, what uh, what uh, the the subheading is for chapter thirteen. So, ah, yes, chapter thirteen, spells.